Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower, along with my good friend and associate Beck Barnes. And since our last visit, I believe most of the Cotton Belt states welcomed winter back in a big way with a few days of rain, snow, and ice, I guess all depending on where you are. It might be good for soil moisture, but it's not so much fun when you're sliding around everywhere, right Beck? You are, you're right about that, sir. Um, <laughs> Yeah, at Memphis, boy, we get natural calamities all the time. But yeah, we yeah we had a uh, uh, sure thing ice storm here midweek last week, and I was it was the end of deer season. I'd gone down home to the farm to hunt in Mississippi. Should have been a two hour drive back, Jim. I told you, uh, and wound up being about four and a half hours. I could have done, had I been in on foot, I could have done the last fifteen miles faster than I made it in my in my vehicle. Uh, once I got to Memphis. So it was the pits. I know if we got any listeners down there around that Clarksdale, Tunica area, I know how icy it was down there. That was not a, not a fun time. I, I think there's still, I mean, it, I know folks in Texas got it too. Um, still probably some folks without power, according to my social media. But uh, also on the flip side, on the, you know, it's not fun to be without power, but I, I talked to a buddy on the rolling plains at the end of last week and man, they were, they were happy to get the little bit of uh, snowfall and, and kind of wintry mixed stuff that they got. It's for a state that was as ravaged with drought last year, they'll take what they can get, I believe, is the Minnesota oh, yeah. Dallas getting. Yeah, definitely. But, well, you know, despite the weather, the other thing the cotton industry can always count on for all of these national, state, regional, and local meetings uh, that are going on right now to conduct official business and help folks get ready for the upcoming season. In case in point, uh, National Cotton Council's annual meeting is coming up here in a few days. It's always a great opportunity to watch that organization in action and get the latest political and economic updates and catch up with uh, with friends we have throughout the industry. Um, I'll be covering those proceedings in Dallas, and we'll give you the full story in our next Cotton Companion episode. Today, we're going to shift our focus to the market side of the industry, the discussion with our friend Bob Antishak. He's a partner with the Gertzi Textile Organization and is a widely published and recognized industry marketing expert and visionary. He's been part of the cotton textile industry for many years. And he's a frequent contributor to numerous global cotton, textile, and apparel publications. And I got in touch with Bob because he recently published an article in Sourcing Journal titled, Let's Put an End to Cotton Scapegoat Status. So we're going to discuss his reasoning about that here in just a couple minutes. But first, just a couple of quick items we want to cover for the uh, for the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. On January 26th, it's announced that the leading global specialty retailer, American Eagle Outfitters, became the newest member of the Trust Protocol. American Eagle and its brands, American Eagle, Airy, Todd Snyder, and Unsubscribed, are joining more than 1,100 supply chain members in supporting the protocol's programs. So uh, congratulations to the protocol and to American Eagle for that. And just a quick reminder that March 31st is a deadline for U.S. cotton producers to enroll in the protocol and complete their data entry for the 2022 crop year. That can be done online at trustuscotton.org. And any additional assistance can be provided by uh, Tillman White, who's the Trust Protocol Program Operations Manager, 
uh, you can contact Tillman via email at twhite at cotton.org. Well, now let's open the virtual studio to welcome Bob Antishak, who's a partner with Gertsey Textile Organization and a widely recognized industry marketing expert, especially when it comes to the cotton textile industry. Bob, welcome back to the Cotton Companion. It's It's been a while since we've had a chance to visit. Jim, thanks so much. It's uh, really great of you and Beck to extend an invitation to join you. It has been a while, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you now. Okay, great. Well, let's, let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, obviously, you know, I saw your article last week about uh, about cotton being, why is cotton being considered a scapegoat? And you wrote that cotton's kind of being set up that way by the textile industry for any number of valid and invalid reasons. Um, why is that? Well, you know, for me, I, I look at the, and particularly the global industry, it's so globalized, right? Um, and it's, it, it is textiles, but it's also brands and retailers. You know, they, they're under uh, considerable pressure, both from within the supply chain to be sustainable, right? And to have a, a, a positive uh, environmental footprint. And at the same time, their customers are, saying, are demanding the same thing. And it's difficult when you're, you know, doing a 15 or 20,000 mile long supply chain to make the case that you're, you're you know, kind of like carbon friendly. Yeah. You know? Like quite a, you know, it, it it's a it's a hard sell, and on top of it, you know, these supply chains have been embedded for a lot of years, many many years. A lot of money's been invested, so it's hard to kind of unwind that at, at the you know at the behest of people who want to you know uh, green up the uh, supply chain, even though you know they may they may want to. There's the practical issues of, of business. So one of the things I've observed is that cotton, from time to time, gets wrongly thrown under the bus. As, as sort of like, oh, this is the cause of all the trouble is cotton, you know, and it's 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 patently unfair and it's it's uh, uh, just not accurate. I mean, um, because at the end of the day, cotton makes up such a small percentage, first of all, of the overall products that are sold at retail, number one. But even more practically, you know, that's that's the things that farmers are working on on the on the farm. How they're being sustainable, how they're really being uh, good stewards of the environment—that's well documented, and and well supported. And all this other talk that comes in is just a way of, I feel, deflecting attention away from the core problem, which is really in these these manufactured supply chains that are wrapping around the globe, and sometimes can be you know four or five countries to get a finished garment that's then in turn brought back here, <laughs> you know, so. And and so that's kind of, that's kind of where I came from on that on that article. Yeah, you know, uh, if I could jump in here, Bob, uh, I hear you. It sounds like one of the problems you're highlighting uh, in the messaging and in practice is uh, sort of the global reach. If we're talking about carbon, and uh, you know, you mentioned it, we are a global industry. We grow it locally, and it gets shipped around the globe as raw material, and it comes back as a finished product. Uh -huh. um, and that's something that I know you've been interested in. Uh, uh, sustainability, I was going to say it's having its moment, but the moment is is years long now. I mean, sustainability uh, is here in our industry in a multitude of ways. I talk to new people who are introducing sustainability programs uh, almost every few months. Um, I hear about a new one, and that's great. I love it. Uh, but right. one of the problems that comes along with that is uh, there seem to be uh, maybe a little confusion 
and around you know around the multiple definitions of what sustainability looks like. Um, do you think that that the uh, the sort of the mixed messaging that people may be getting, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of hurts uh, the cause there? Yeah, Beck, I think it's a really good question, and um, the thing that I've observed is, uh, I think one reason why cotton gets picked on at times is because there are a lot of voices in the cotton industry and they have a lot of uh, uh, objectives and sometimes they're conflicting, sometimes they're just competitive on a business front, other times it's just different aspects of an environmental message where they're stressing one aspect of cotton growing as opposed to another. And I think because of that, it, it makes it on the one hand somewhat easier for brands who are looking to kind of assign blame or find faults in, in cotton and, again, to deflect potential uh, concerns about um, their own supply chains, it makes it a little bit easier in that sense because it's a kind of a split audience in a way because you have a lot of different voices in the cotton industry. And, you know, I think that that kind of like, uh, I mean, that's an issue that you know, I've written about in the past as well, but it's like I really see it a lot these days. It's like there's some, and, and again, having said all that, all the cotton groups, let me say this, are terrific. I mean, they're all, these are good meeting folks. I mean, you could take from the biggest ones to the smallest ones. Everyone's trying to do the right thing, and they're all trying to figure out how to do it. And in all honesty, I would say, you know, certainly uh, all these brands and retailers, they're not evil people or anything. They're all just trying to figure out how to get their get their messaging done and how to push push it across to a to a consumer who's asking for it. Okay, it's just that when they when they look and they try to get facts and figures, half the time they end up just saying, "Okay, well, I saw it on Wikipedia, and this is what's the story." Okay, and I you know I've seen that time and again. You know, there there reference studies that were done. You know, um, you know, thirty years twenty five years ago trying to make it, you know, to try to bolster whatever case they're making for, for their own products. So without a sense of like, there's like some overarching authority or some mechanism. Okay. And, and that's what all due respect to, to the big organizations in the cotton industry who do an amazing job and are essential. Okay. Um, but there's still even like outside of the industry, that's where I'm coming from. There's like nothing from outside the industry to kind of settle this whole you know, settle the argument down, kind of come up with solutions, kind of work with all the different stakeholders in this conversation and try to come up with something kind of like like a unified approach in terms of representing um, not only how cotton's used, but also how products are made, the manufactured products are made downstream. Yeah. I know that's something that you um, are kind of uniquely positioned to, you've been working with, you've been working on rather kind of a unified field to retail shelf approach to this stuff. I've been at events that you've put on where, you know, we've been on the Hardwick's farm down in Louisiana and you got sourcing professionals from San Francisco and Brooklyn getting their getting their shoes muddy on the farm, which I loved. You know, that's that's the type of best type of stuff we love to see. Um I know you also, Bob, you keep your eye on that consumer, uh, what's going on at retail shelf, what consumers are saying they value uh, to that end. You know, just for out of curiosity, for our growers' uh, uh, curiosity, um, what metrics do growers care about these days? What resonates with them? You mentioned carbon footprint. Is that something that uh, consumers are looking at at retail shelf? Is it water use reduction? Is it pesticide reduction? Or 
any one of those things resonating louder than others uh, at the retail shelf these days? Look, I think the, the things that I see are the ones that are the easiest to visualize. So water is an easy one. Yeah. And you make the claim, oh, if someone makes a claim, we use less water. Okay. People kind of says, okay, well, we get a sense of that. Uh, people will also get a sense of, um, okay, less um, uh, less pesticides. Like you're like, oh, well, that's good without, you know, on the surface, you know, without understanding anything about growing or anything. It's just, yeah, that's how that, that plays well, right? Yeah. On the, yeah. On that note, you know, I've got so many of my growers, hey, man, I'm doing a zillion percent fewer pesticides since 1998. You know, okay, well, what happened at 98? In 98? Oh, yeah, there's, you know, BT. It's a thing called BT, or, or Jim, correct me on the year if I'm wrong there, but, you know, yeah, compared to 20, 25 years ago, so many of our growers are just doing uh, less pesticide applications than they were, than their dads did, you know? And so that's, you know, you t- uh, that seems like a, a positive message. What is a message that growers could tell there, but people might get hung up on the fact, oh, well, the reason for that is because we have modified seed now, you know? I mean, you know, I guess, how do you balance that message? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I still see it. I'm really still surprised by this, but there's still this interplay on organ- so-called organic, in quotes, and, and GM cut, GM, they'll say, you know, the sinister way, GMO, you know, the Franken-Crop kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. There's still a degree of that, and I mentioned that in the article. I mean, it's still out there. I'm really kind of surprised after all the years of people attempting to be educated in the business. Um, you know, it, it's still there. They're still very passionate advocates. Um, they were out there still beating the drum about, you know, growing techniques. And now there's like new, new, new labels that have suddenly appeared downstream that are actually are very old labels like regenerative, yeah, which is, a, you know, which is sort of like, well, that's great. You know, we, we all understand that, but you know, it's, it's, they make it sound like it's something brand new and in reality, it's like been around a long time. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a style of, of growing. Um, it's a, there's an approach to growing, it's great stuff, but it's also a way to distinguish one's, um, sustainability message, um, as opposed to somebody else's, which is one reason why I think organic still continues to hold on is that people still have, the consumer still has in their mind, um, you know, this, this perception, oh, it's either organic milk or it's something that's pure or untouched by, you know, human hands or <laughs> what they're. You know whatever the perception is, but it, it, but again, you know, for the cons- for the retailer, it's tough because they have to they have to respond to that, um, and and for a lot of the value added brands in particular, this is like a real issue because so much of their messaging is built around being able to show a transparent supply chain, you know, uh, cotton being grown properly according to certain things, uh, their labor. Standards being such, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into the final product and they have to be able to document it for a a knowledgeable consumer who granted may be a more affluent consumer in many cases, but sometimes it just can be average John on the street, just depends, you know. Um, So I I think it's, I don't want to make the point that it's just, it's, you know, it's the wealthy consumers as opposed to everybody else. It's not, It's, it's more mixed than that. But 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 again, I think for a lot of the brands who are trying to to be unique in the marketplace and really try to you know set themselves apart from would be competitors, yeah, it's a it's a compelling story. I want to circle back around just just for a moment on we talked about the global supply chains and the issues associated with it. Is that something that can be fixed? 
easily? Well, <laughs> I've been I've been working with a lot of different people trying to figure that out, and it's interesting. I was I was intrigued yesterday, and there was an announcement made by the White House, and um, I think the Vice President was touting that there's been all this new investment coming into the Caribbean in textiles and apparel. And my firm has seen that too. I mean, it's really quite, I mean, we're talking like, you know, billions coming in there that are being put in. Whereas for many years, it had all just kind of, you know, moved out of this hemisphere. I mean, it was elsewhere. Now all of a sudden it's coming back because I think there's a tendency on the part of a lot of sourcing companies. And again, I'm talking big brands, retailers, to find a, um, a closer source of supply to the consuming market. And that's a way of unwinding a bit of this excessive over-reliance on complicated um, supply chains and, you know, which can be very difficult to manage. And as we, as we saw during the pandemic, they proved to be, when stress tests, they all collapsed. They, just were, they were brittle. And again, I think it was sort of like everyone thought it worked great. Just in time was, you know, was marvelous and we had these great suppliers and that's terrific until the whole thing fell apart and then these, you know contracts are being cut up and people aren't getting paid and a lot of people offshore frankly who really got hurt through all of that which is something of course none of the brands wanted or intended to do but it was the reality of what they were faced with right so but it also showed that in the long run just putting everything in on that model was just not handling risk management well and I think it, I think farmers can relate to that. They hedge your risk, right? You know, yeah. and and I think that was a lesson I think for a lot of companies was that you better, you know, hedge your bets, which means come closer to home or or, or actually produce in the U.S. or produce regionally or in the hemisphere, as opposed to just throwing everything offshore, you know, in Asia and and right. elsewhere. Well, since we're being basically not positioned as a scapegoat in all this. Uh, what can cotton do to defend itself for all this, all these discussions? Well, again, I, I, I you know, it's funny. I, I get, I get a little, um, you know, I, I've given that some thought because people ask me that, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, so you're, you're paying me to be a consultant. <laughs> so it's like, oh, wow, rack my brain. And, you know, I keep coming back to if the industry is ultimately going to police itself. It's like any commercial activity. It's going to be hard. There's going to be competing interests involved. And and when you have competing interests involved, it's really hard to see how you can get a consensus at the end of the day. Even though many, even though the vast majority of companies are, are trying to accomplish the same thing, you get, you get the commercial element brought into it. You get the marketing brought into it, you know, and it all comes back to sales ultimately for them. So that's why I come back and I, I just, you know, I wonder if there's some sort of a way of structuring something, you know, over the industry or something that's uh, bought into by the industry to help facilitate that. I don't have the answer really. I don't know, uh, you know, um, I mean, I've, I've, you know, in the article, I think, uh, you know, I talk about some possibilities, but, but again, those, those will be controversial and, um, but even even so, it's just sort of like that. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Is that there just has to be some sort of a, you know, um, a unified way. Because again, it's not just cotton, and that's my point. You can't just blame cotton because you got a whole supply chain here that's guilty of all kinds of stuff. Okay, and 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 again, ultimately, it's not a question of the of the blame game and the guilt game. I mean, there's people who will of course push for that, but 
at the end of the day, it's kind of like, how do we solve the problem? You know, and to your point, Jim, so it's kind of like, how do we, what's the best way of approaching that? And I think, you know, that's, that's, that's a challenge, I think, for the industry as a whole. Well, you, you mentioned in, in the article, <clears throat> I guess, throwing ideas out and possibilities out. You mentioned mandated content labeling yeah. as, a, as a possible option. And obviously, there are going to be a lot of obstacles in the way of that one. How can the industry make something like that work? Yeah, it's really hard. And, you know, it, it's interesting. They're, they're slowly adopting that in different countries in Europe. And before everybody here in the U.S. starts yelling and say, we're not going to do that, step back a minute. I mean, what they're doing is, in effect, nothing more really than what the FDA does here when it comes to like a food product. Okay, it gives you basics, you know, of, um, you know, what the nutritional contents is, you know, other nutritional aspects of it. Uh, also, to get like a, like an organic label on food, there has to go through a process with USDA, as I understand it, in order to get that certification. Okay, so we're back to a government solution, good, bad, or otherwise, that is something that would be over the industry per se. But it wouldn't be done in a vacuum. Typically, these things they they have the governments would have they have to solicit industry input in order to come up with answers on this. But regardless of what people's feelings are about using the government, might might where I'm coming from is is it's a sentiment that we need to figure out how do we unify all this if it's going to really get solved. In other words, I just think the longer we just kind of chew the topic up as an industry, then you know I'm talking about the whole supply chain. It'll keep going, and yet it'll just be—it'll constantly just be used to sell more product. It won't ultimately end up solving the problem. Like talking about for the whole industry, because just the standards aren't really there. It's just—it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, there are standards that are developed, but it'll be like one portion of the trade. You know, and and then it's difficult. How do you translate that up and down a supply chain? You know, and then what about this other activity that could be going on? And again, everyone means well. It's just like, it's just how do you get that top-down kind of approach? But on the other hand, some folks will say, well, that's too draconian. We've got to really, you know, um, there has to be an easier way of doing it. And I'm not saying I have the answer to it. It's just my instincts are suggesting there's got to be some sort of a, um, wherever the organization or wherever it's done, there has to be buy-in. And even saying that is hard because it, it'll always be difficult to get buy-in from, from the industry out because there'll always be somebody who doesn't want to play for whatever reasons. But um, I just think there's just some sort of a extra industry kind of solution that has to be kind of thought about. That's where I'm coming from. Well, it sounds good. And, and as long as I've known you, Bob, I've always known your instincts to be pretty good and uh, and pretty much right on target. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. I mean, it's, it's all really interesting stuff. Uh, obviously, you've provided a lot, plenty of food for thought, both in your article and in this discussion. We appreciate that. So we're just going to kind of sign off at this point. Thanks for joining us again today, Bob. It's it's always a pleasure to visit with you. Take a look at how the industry beyond the gin impacts us all. Uh, we're going to continue to watch your columns and articles, and, and we'll find a reason to get back together again real soon. Sounds great, Jim. Thank you very much. Again, this has really been a pleasure. And uh, Beck, thank you. It's always always good to catch up. And uh, thank you, Bob. Keep up the good work with Cotton Grower. Book's looking great. So. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. So, okay. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Uh, we want to thank especially Bob Antishak for taking time from his busy schedule to visit with us. 
Uh, and as always, we want to thank you, dear listener, for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you do like what you heard, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farming friends about the Cotton Companion podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion, or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-news, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Dunn Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues, the world headquarters from Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedden, East Back Barnes, and we'll be back with you in two weeks with news from the NCC annual meeting the next episode of the Cotton Companion Farm. Until then, stay safe. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God.